uh, welcome everyone to another Saturday webinar made possible by the Ashbrook Center, which is an independent center at Ashland University, offering a number of resources to help teachers teach young citizens what it means to be Americans. My name is Chris Burkett. I'm Associate Professor of Political Science and History and co-chair of the Master of Arts in American History and Government program here at Ashland University. For those of you joining us for the first time, the theme of this year's webinar series is Presidents and Their Times. And the point is for uh, uh, three scholars to get together, um, in this case, two of whom are experts in this area. Uh, and uh, we'll just have a fun, informal, and um, uh, interesting conversation uh, about 10 presidents this year. Uh, as always, I encourage you to participate in that conversation by submitting questions in the chat box, and we will try to get to as many of those questions as possible. You will receive an email with a link to receive your certificate of participation for joining us today. Um, as always, uh, we uh, base our conversations uh, as in everything that we do here uh, at Ashbrook. We base our conversations on original documents. We've asked you to take a look, or we've recommended uh, a number of documents which are available uh, on the TAH, teachingamericanhistory.org website. And uh, we will be referring to those documents from time to time, uh, time, to time today in, in our webinar. So let me introduce our panelists today. Jeremy Bailey is Associate Professor, uh, and he holds the Ross M. Lentz Distinguished Teaching Chair with a dual appointment in political science and the Honors College at the University of Houston. His research interests include executive power, constitutionalism, and American political thought and development. And um, Jeremy teaches regularly in our MAG program, our master's program, including courses on the American presidency and the early republic. Jace Weaver is the Franklin Professor of Native American Studies and Religion, Director of the Institute of Native American Studies, and Adjunct Professor of Law at the University of Georgia. He's the author of uh, author or editor of 10 books, including That the People Might Live, Native American Literatures, and Native American Community. And Jace has won numerous awards for his writings and scholarship. Uh, Jace and Jeremy both taught a course together in our in the past summer in our master's program on Indian assimilation, resistance, and removal. And so it's good to have both of you back together again for this conversation on Andrew Jackson, um, who is not only uh, one of the most interesting individuals in terms of his personality and his, his background and just the kind of person he, he actually was in his life, but also maybe one of the more controversial of the, of the presidents that we'll be dealing with this year in our webinar series. But I want to start with the broad question, and either of you can jump in, and maybe you'll answer this the same way, maybe you'll have different answers to this question, but, the, but I just want to ask what both of you think is the most significant impact that uh, Jackson's presidency has had. What, what was the most significant or important aspect of his presidency that's had a significant impact on American politics, American uh, history, uh, the American way of life. And I'll let either one of you fight over who wants to start with Jerry, why don't you start since you're broader on this than I am. Okay, so I would, um, if, if, if asked, so, so the number one thing, the number one thing I think would have to be um, the creation of the Democratic Party, capital D, capital P, 
um, and the creation of the party system. Um, I think those are probably clearly the most lasting elements of, of, of Jackson's administration and of Jacksonianism. I think there are some parts that are related to that that we can go into. But I can say why that's important later, but just to, just to lay it out there, I think it'd be the creation of the party system. And from my standpoint, um, it's uh, the prolonged uh, crisis around Indian removal from the South. Of course, Jackson was elected with the support of Southern frontiersmen. He himself, of course, was an old Indian fighter. He had fought two Indian wars uh, prior to becoming president. And so he was determined to fulfill uh, his campaign promise to remove Indians from what at the time was the American Southwest. It's hard to imagine it, but that's what it, what it was called. So, okay, this is interesting. So we've got two big topics here. Uh, let's start, if we don't mind, with um, maybe with Jeremy's, uh, um, the, the thing that Jeremy mentioned, which was his impact on uh, party politics in the country and the creation of the Democratic Party. Uh, and, and maybe eventually we can ask the question, are the two things that you mentioned related to the, to the Indian American Indian question have anything to do with the creation of the, of the, of the Democratic Party? But uh, Jeremy, can you just fill us in on what you think was, um, how, did, how did Jackson, uh, what was his role in the creation of the, of the Democratic Party? And how did this come about? Was this, because the typical sort of story that I hear is, um, I always hear that the, 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 the creation of the Democratic Party was largely the result of reacting to the creation of the Whig Party, which was established in opposition to the kinds of presidential overreach that, that they thought Jackson was engaging in. Is there is there any truth to that? Yeah, I think that's I think that's probably true. That that's not exactly what I had in mind. I was, I was maybe making a broader and less specific point, and I'll, I'll explain that in a second. Uh, let me also uh, cheat a little bit and give you my my second uh, most important issue. That way, I can preload the discussion for for down the road. Um, <laughs> and and I think I think that would be um, Jackson's defense of executive power. Uh, takes a, a particular form that that I, that I think is is especially important, and and it unites various policies in, in, in Jackson's administration, but but his use of executive powers is is especially important in the, in the party system, for for the reason you suggest, Chris, because it it, it it it's what unites the Whig opposition to him, and so understanding Jackson means understanding ja uh, executive power. Um, but let me let me come back to, to the to the first point, and then by the creation of the party system. Uh, this is a, a, a something that that is not my idea. Uh, it's it's a very common idea out there, and but it's an important one for for, for people who think about the period to, to grasp. And that is that before the Jacksonians, and here I'm not trying to credit just Jackson with with this, but before the Jacksonians, uh, the common idea was that political parties were uh, a kind of uh, at best a necessary evil. Are, are a kind of emergency measure. Uh, so for example, uh, Jefferson and Madison create parties. They found parties, but they don't believe political parties should stay. They don't believe parties can have a positive influence. Rather, they're an emergency measure used to meet the threat of Hamiltonianism, which is a bigger threat. The Jacksonians, and, and here of course Van Buren is, is important, but Jackson too, um, are, are the first to really give what we might call a positive good defense of parties. And in that sense, uh, the Jacksonians are, are are closer to us today than they were to, say, maybe um, 
uh, the, the, the Americans of the era of good feelings. So in some sense, there's a kind of modern uh, modernity to, 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 the, to the Jacksonian party system um, that is closer to us today in our own lives than it was to just people living a few decade, a decade or so before that. And I think that's a very important point. Yeah. Uh, so they became more. Sorry, go ahead, Jason. I was just going to say that uh, in the election of uh, 1828, when he is uh, uh, elected, uh, he, it's, it's just interesting that someone called him a jackass. And so he used the donkey as a symbol, and that's still the symbol for the Democratic Party. <laughs> Amazing. What did he? Uh, did he? It's interesting that you uh, that you start with this. Um, what you call Jeremy this sort of modern, very modern view of the of the pre of the parties as a positive good. And uh, one of the questions that's already been submitted uh, in the chat feature is, uh, what can can we say? How how much can be said for the idea that Andrew Jackson is a forerunner of Theodore Roosevelt? That would that would take a lot to unpack. Um, there, there are some 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 broad similarities. Uh, what one similarity would be um, Jackson um, is one of the first to, to, to assert what I, what I would call the, the representational nature of the presidency. That is that the president, like members of Congress, represents the people. But unlike members of Congress, he represents the whole people. That's certainly in our in our Jackson documents. That's certainly a, a newish idea. And it certainly connects him to T.R. T.R.'s idea of steward of the people. A major difference, though, is that is that for the most part, Jackson is uh, a believer in states' rights, uh, the nullification proclamation, you know, to the contrary. But but for the most part, uh, Jackson is a believer in, in states' rights. He's a believer in a limited central government. And that would make a, a, a major difference between him and T.R. And, and between Jackson and the 20th century. However, but, uh, you mentioned executive power, which is something that will bring us back to uh – the Native American issue, but they both believed in robust executives. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, see, that's, that's, right. that's it's a, there's a there's a very strange. Go ahead, Jeremy, please. I was just going to say there's a very strange paradox with uh, Jackson, and and Tocqueville noticed it, but 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 people have commented on for, for a while, and that is that uh, Jackson tried to blend um, a. Uh, uh, a kind of Hamiltonian executive with a, a, a kind of Jeffersonian understanding of, of the states and, 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 the, and the constitutional order. And that's, that's, that, that makes figuring out J Jackson especially difficult for, for people who are into those kinds of things. Well, it's, uh, on, on this issue of executive power and states' rights, and you mentioned uh, the nullification crisis, it's, uh, you guys have read, um, um, Marshall's uh, majority opinion in Worcester versus Georgia, which uh, Jackson uh, said was stillborn and would not be able to coerce Georgia. He refused to enforce it. But there was a, a year earlier, there was another case, which was Cherokee Nation versus Georgia. And Marshall had decided that the Supreme Court did not have jurisdiction, uh, original jurisdiction, because the Constitution provides for uh, original jurisdiction in the Supreme Court when a suit is brought against a state of the United States by a foreign state. And he ruled that the Cherokee were not a foreign state. But Joseph Story, who was an associate justice of the court, would have found jurisdiction. 
And it, in Worcester versus Georgia, Story again sided with the Cherokees. And Jackson called him the most dangerous man in America because of those two decisions. But in, in less than a year after Worcester versus Georgia, Story is at the White House sipping wine with the president being toasted by him. What has changed is South Carolina has passed uh, the nullification ordinance. And suddenly, despite his belief in states' rights, a good federalist de decision looks much better to him. That's fascinating. That's fascinating. Yeah. Yeah, because it's a, it's, you've raised an interesting, what always struck me as a paradox in Jackson, because as Jeremy pointed out, he is, he's known for his, as a strong defender of states' rights, which is why, by the way, going back to this question of whether Jackson's a forerunner of Theodore Roosevelt, uh, I would broaden that question a little bit to say, in what sense is he a forerunner of the progressive understanding of the presidency? But among progressives, there was uh, some loved uh, Jackson, some despised him. Woodrow Wilson, the Woodrow Wilson type president had a lot of contempt for Jackson because of his defense of states' rights. But uh, as we know, Theodore Roosevelt, um, in that speech that uh, I think Jeremy was referencing earlier, where Jackson, or where Roosevelt thinks of himself as the steward of the people, Roosevelt describes two types of presidents. There are the Jackson-Lincoln types of presidents, and then there are the um, uh, Buchanan-Taft types of presidents that aren't uh, that aren't very energetic in their office. Um, but uh, but yeah, at least Theodore Roosevelt seemed to have a high degree of respect for Andrew Jackson because of, of his willingness to use the power of the office for for national policies that were good for the whole somehow. But but there is but there but you, but to your point, Jace, how do we resolve how do you, I've always struggled with how do you resolve the fact that Jackson was so pro states rights at the beginning and yet he really came down really hard on South Carolina for this for the nullification crisis. I think what you were just describing is really helpful. Yeah, the um, he uh, was very much uh, pro states' rights in the beginning, and one of the reasons he pushed Indian removal so strongly is that he feared that if he did not remove Indians from the southern states, that they might actually secede. He, he was trying to keep, he thought he was trying to keep the union together, was one of his arguments. But then the nullification ordinance, which is another brick in the road to civil war, uh, comes down, and suddenly uh, he uh, sees that there are limits to states' rights. It doesn't change his view on Indian removal, and he continues to pursue those policies. But he, he gets the, uh, he asks for the force resolution to use force if necessary to enforce the tariffs, but it never had to be done. Yeah. So it's fascinating. If you look at two of the two of the um, messages or two of the speeches from Jackson that we recommended for today, the first two are um, his veto message of the bank bank bill, where one of the reasons he gives is um, for for uh, vetoing the bank bill is that it's um, he calls it subversive to the rights of state. So even that's in 1832 in July. And then Six months later, seven months later in December, he's he's issuing the proclamation regarding nullification. So uh, is Jackson just all over the map? I've read people who say Jackson's inconsistent in his views on these things, or 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 should we should we say that he's being perfectly consistent in doing both of these things? Well, uh, at uh, the time of Jackson, 
it isn't until after the Civil War that the United States is a unitary thing that we say the United States is. It was far more common in Jackson's era to say the United States are. Uh, at the same time, Jackson was for preserving the Union. Uh, and the nullification crisis, he thought, threatened that. See, that's, yeah, yeah, that's interesting. Yeah, I, I would, I would, you know, if 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 we were to conjure Jackson or um, maybe Roger Tawney uh, here, I, I think I think maybe you know what what they would say is is uh, well, look, um, there's a difference between thinking that the states have certain rights and the Constitution lays out those rights, and there's a process for that, and when when in doubt, read the Constitution. To, to, to respect um, the agreements that were made in the Constitution, which include agreements made towards the states. So, for example, you, the state can't have a state built within its own state, right? Um, but there's a difference between that kind of sensitivity towards states' rights and then a, a state saying, look, after the political process works out in Congress, we're not going to abide by the result. And that is, you know, if we don't like the terms of the tariff, we're going we're gonna to nullify it. So, so I could see one saying, "Look, just because you believe in states' rights, don't believe that doesn't mean you have to believe in in, in nullification." Um, so, I, I would expect that would be the kind of way that you'd figure that out. Now, the deeper question would be: is, is of course, wh whether the foundations for those arguments uh, require can kind of allow that kind of distinction, and that that's more challenging. And I'm just, I my my question with Jackson is, I don't know if he, he was thinking at that kind of level or not. Um, and and sometimes I think he is, and sometimes I think he isn't. So I guess what I was I, that, that helps me actually a lot because what I've always looked for is what are the what are the sort of uh, unifying principles, if you will, that informed Jackson's decisions on these sorts of things. And it, and I can see one. What you're both suggesting to me is I can see one overarching one, which is preservation of the union. Uh, as Absolutely. In his day, yeah. Absolutely. That that's that's useful. That's very yeah. interesting. Now that that let me add to that. That would attach also, you know, one one of the positive good cases made for parties, and this is a little bit more Van Buren than Jackson, but Jackson would have believed this, is that the Democratic Party will 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 hold a union together. I mean, if you look at the election of eighteen twenty four, you know, with the Missouri Compromise in your rearview mirror, one of the things you're worried about is, is sectionalism, pulling things apart. And so if you can have a national party to provide a kind of unity to that, then, then yeah, that's one, one of the reasons why parties might be good is to provide a kind of national unity as opposed to just sectionalist claims based on interest alone. Um, and so that, that'd be one of the positive good cases for party that they, they bring along. Yeah, that's interesting. So can I, can I go, go back a little bit to the question of the national bank? Because it seems that that, 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 that idea that you just mentioned, Jeremy, is is very present at least sort of underneath the surface if not at times on the surface of his argument against the national bank so we've had a couple of people submit questions about about jackson's views of the bank and in particular um i guess what what do you think about his argument in the veto message against the bank does it is it a sound argument is it um indeed do do right but so, so I mean, my, my understanding. So, so when I when I teach the the, the bank message, um, I, I kind of say that there are two kinds of arguments, and there, and there usually are in these in these kinds of things. There are the sort of the the, the policy arguments about the, the the merits 
for and against the policy. And often those are, are kind of, um, okay, what's good for, for the common good, but also how are we going to make a compromise among competing interests? Um, and over time, I find those to be less interesting. Maybe, maybe it's an occupational hazard that I face. I, I'm more interested in the second basket of arguments, and those are the sort of the, the constitutional claims that are made there uh, and what, what they look like. So, but if, if the questions are oriented towards, towards bank policy, I, I would say that, that you know, for one, this, this gets me a little bit out of my skill set, but my understanding is, is that, is that um, the, the straightforward understanding is best, and that is that Jackson and his coalition believed that the bank was representing uh, a certain elite interest, and they were doing so in a way that wasn't for the common good. Um, now, uh, that had been an ongoing debate in American politics, uh, going all the way back to, to Hamilton's financial plan. And uh, so in some sense, you have the same two pol political coalitions arguing about financial policy, uh, and sort of in terms of winners and losers. And what makes it interesting is, is it entangled with, with claims about the Constitution. And so, and so I don't know if the questions are about the, the, the constitutional claims here. Uh, the two things I'd point out just as an initial matter there would be, one, um, there is a, 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 a question about the role of the veto power in our constitutional order. That, 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 that the message brings up. And the other is that there's a question about uh, the role of what um, Jackson calls mere precedent. Um, and those, those are the two things that I would, you know, be interested in exploring if I were to go further on that. It's interesting on this question of consistency or inconsistency of Jackson that you kind of posed, Chris. Um, He's above all, I think, I mean, as you say, there's this unifying principle of preservation of the Union, but he's above all uh, a pragmatist who can tack uh, with the wind when he needs to. It's interesting, in his first message to Congress, he, he talks about Indian removal, and he says that it should be voluntary because it would be as cruel as it is unjust to make them leave the graves uh, of their fathers, the Indians. Compare it to the second message, he says, white people move all the time. What's the big deal? Land's more, yeah. <laughs> land's more or less fungible. What's changed, of course, is the Indian Removal Act is passed in between those two messages. Yeah. Yeah, that line stood out to me, Jace, as I was reading this message, which I had, I confess I had not read before. And the second, that's the 1830 annual message. Yeah, he, raised, he asked the question, is it any harder for... For American Indian tribes to leave their native lands than it is for white settlers to leave behind their brothers and fathers. That line really stood out to me. Yeah, in the 1831 message. I'm sorry, in the 1831. Oh, no, December 1830. You're right. You're yeah, right. This, yeah, we have the 1829 and the 1830. Yeah, in the 1830, yeah. Yeah. And the Indian Removal Act passed in late May of that year. Right. Yeah. yeah so let me, the, the message was December after the right. passage of the Act in May. Yeah. Let, let me say one thing about the uh, the first message, uh, the first annual. So that's the eighteen um, twenty nine one, um, which which I noticed this time for the first time uh, on rereading it, and that is that so so Jackson is talking about more or less trying to continue, um, um, this the sort of prior policy of assimilation, which. You know, one could argue uh, has a certain kind of uh, justice to it or nobility to it, uh, if 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 successful. Um, uh, 
or, or maybe one could argue it's, it's a, ba- a, a fairly decent policy under 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 the conditions. But it was a spectacular failure uh, for for a variety of reasons. And, and one is that the people who were proclaiming the policy didn't didn't enforce it or, or didn't know how to enforce it. So maybe maybe it was an unenforceable policy. But the point that I noticed is that Jackson says, look, by its, judged by its own terms, the policy is not working because we keep on pushing the Indians further west. And how do you and, and forcing them to start over and judge by its own terms, make them f- put them backwards in their in their in their in their march towards civilization. And so if you believe that civilization and assimilate assimilation is your goal, judge by its own terms, the policy isn't working. And I thought that was a very interesting criticism. Um, of course, it leads to, you know, again, with with Jackson, perhaps the most clarifying thing is that he wanted to get rid of the Indians from day one, and, and this was all, um, you know, what we might call mere rhetoric. Uh, maybe that's the best explanation. But, but if well, that's not the yeah, – go ahead, Jace. I was going to say, uh, uh, you know, George Washington had set the, the policy of uh, assimilation in place, and that had been more or less followed uh, on through. Um, after the Louisiana Purchase, uh, Jefferson – speaks of relocating the Indians west of the Mississippi, uh, but drops the idea. And Georgia had been promised in the Compact of 1802 in exchange for surrendering its claims to the western lands that became Alabama and Mississippi, that the federal government would remove Indians from its new internal boundaries. But it didn't say that they had to use force to do it, and it didn't say when they had to do it. By the time Jackson comes to office, Georgia is getting very, very uh, anxious. And through this whole process of civilization, Jeremy, to bring it back to what you were saying, um, the missionaries make the argument about about removal that it will set them back. Uh, De Tocqueville talks about it, uh, that uh, when they are relocated, uh, they just go back to the chase and back to their old ways. So I think Jackson is echoing that in the first message, but by the second, he just knows they have to go. Jace, do you think um, that the second message is, is Jackson's um, policy from day one, um, and that the first message is just him sort of gesturing uh, already, I mean, is, is the second message the, the, the true Jackson policy and the first message is kind of... Um, I, I do, because he's pushed for the Indian Removal Act, and I think he's trying to soften up people, particularly Northeasterners. It doesn't work, but he's saying, you know, it should be voluntary and it's benevolent and they can go and exercise their sovereignty elsewhere and blah, blah, blah. I think that's just to try to get some northern votes. Uh, But in the end, removal, as you know, is passed almost strictly along sectional lines. The South thought the North was hypocritical because they had taken care of their Indian problem long ago when they were trying to prevent the South from taking care of theirs. Yeah, these are. I was going to ask two, two, two questions along these lines. You both started to address them. One is, how how sincere was Jackson? Uh, because again, in his 1829 message, it's all it's all about sort of the humanitarian 
basis. This is good for the American Indians. Look at look at what this will allow them to do. Uh, and then in the eighteen in the eighteen thirty message, um, he's really emphasizing the beneficial effects. More, he's more emphasizing, I should say. I thought the beneficial effects that this has on the existing states and the possibility of westward expansion. Uh, in the eighteen thirty message, he he says um, uh, in laying out some of the benefits of the act. Um, he says, by opening the whole territory between uh, Tennessee on the north and Louisiana on the south to the settlement of the whites, it will incalcul incalculably strengthen the southwest frontier, render the adjacent states more or strong enough to repel future invasions. Uh, it will separate the Indians from immediate contact with settlements of whites, free them from the power of the states, enable them to pursue happiness in their own way and under their own brood institutions. But, but it seems like in the 1830 message, maybe I'm reading this wrong, he's, he's, he's now sort of showing his hand by pointing out how the Indian Removal Act and the policies that follow from it are good for uh, white Americans in the existing states. See, in the 1829 message, what I got was, this is gonna help reclaim them from the wandering life, it's gonna help civilize them, but they'll also be free to live their own way of life. So I, my, my, I guess my first big, Thing that I'm not clear on is how 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 sincere is Jackson in both of these messages? Which is the real view of Jackson? And then my second big question had to do, Jace, with what you were just bringing up. How did this bill? How did this law, this act, actually get passed? And how instrumental how instrumental was Jackson in getting the Indian Removal Act passed? There had already been a Removal Act floating around Congress, but Jackson has really made it his first legislative priority. I think the first message, and this goes to Jeremy's question, I think it is largely window dressing. He's hoping to pick off some northern votes. Um, and as I say, it didn't work. Uh, the northeast, the north, voted almost entirely against it. The south voted almost entirely for it. The only southerner that voted against it, to my knowledge, was an obscure congressman from Tennessee named David Crockett. And he lost re-election uh, the next election because of it. And then he came back two years later and won and then was defeated again, all because of his votes on Indian removal. And after he's defeated the second time is when he utters his famous line to his constituents, you can go to hell, I'm going to Texas. So he might have lived to be an old uh, politician in Tennessee were it not for Indian removal. Yeah. That's fascinating. Can I, can I ask what, what I know you again, both of you taught this course this summer. It was fantastic. Uh, the students who were in the course loved it. Um, can I get the, the other perspective on this? I mean, we've been talking about Jackson's perspective on Indian removal. What was the what was the American Indian perspective on this? And what did they think of Jackson? <laughs> he, he's, he was not a popular guy. Uh, <laughs> he, uh, as I say, he had fought two Indian wars. He had fought uh, he had led the uh, troops in the Creek War, which takes place during the War of 1812, and the Cherokees actually fought alongside him, and the Battle of the Horseshoe um, actually saved the day. But then his uh, uh, Tennessee militia returning home after that war uh, just really uh, uh, created... Uh, uh, stage depredations against the Cherokee on the way, burning crops and killing livestock and so forth. Um, so the Cherokee had initially been very favorable to him. Then, uh, of course, in 1817, 
he he uh sorry uh uh he um uh, in 1817 he leads federal troops into florida in the so-called first seminole war um to punish the seminoles for harboring self-emancipating enslaved africans and of course getting florida from spain was a happy byproduct uh, so he was not uh, a popular guy among Indians when he came into office. Um, and um, after the Indian Removal Act, the Choctaw and the Chickasaw, who were close relatives, capitulated almost immediately uh, and signed removal treaties. Um, the Creeks lasted a little longer. And, and then the Cherokees, you know, take the court route uh, and, um, and try everything they can to resist it. Um, when an Indian removal, when, when a blatantly illegal treaty is signed um, um, in 1835, the Treaty of New Echota, um, George Lowry, who was John Ross's deputy principal chief, gathers 15,700 signatures in a petition to Congress asking them not to, to the Senate asking them not to ratify it. Uh, but it's interesting as well. Uh, there had been treaties with the well, two different views of sovereignty. Cherokees break into factions at this time. Both of them believe that sovereignty is something real. Uh, the bulk of them believe that it's tied to a particular land base, their traditional lands. Uh, but another faction says that, in a sense, it's about control over people, and keeping if you can keep the people together, that sovereignty can be exercised anywhere. But what I was going to say is that there had been, Cherokees had ceded their lands in 1817 and 1819 that were in North Carolina, but those treaties both contain provisions saying that anyone who would renounce their citizenship in the Cherokee Nation and become a citizen of the United States and live under the laws of North Carolina could remain and would be given, each head of household would be given what was referred to as a personal reservation, 640 acres. Now, the people that negotiated the Treaty of New Echota negotiated that same provision, but before Jackson sent it to the Senate, he took pen and ink and personally scratched out that provision. No one was going to stay. Wow. Huh. That's amazing. I did, I did not know that. Um, I, I have one um, very small comment about uh, the, the Indian Removal Act itself and, and just, just maybe, maybe uh, to, to, to provide a slightly different way, way of asking the question. And maybe this is because I'm a political scientist. I I I, I asked this question this way: is and this is whenever whenever we see a vote on say a policy, um, what let's call it like this this international Pacific trade agreement right now. Uh, it's it's sometimes the case that, that that the vote is made precisely on on the policy grounds. Do you like the policy or not? But it's often the case that it's entangled with other stuff that's going on. And for example, that the, the sorting that the parties are going through at the moment, and with the Indian Removal Act, um, my, my guess is is that when you when you look at the votes, you're going to want to put that in the context of sorting with other votes. Now, that's a question: Should the Indian Removal Act be be uh, something that's studied uh, simultaneously with say votes on the bank, are 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 votes on the tariff, 
or, or should it be uh, treated as something different? Um, that, that's going to be a kind of a disciplinary question that people ask all the time. Um, that, that my, my, my guess is that when you look at it, you're going to see that the swing, the swing vote, so to speak, would be what we call the Northwest. And so um, that is that. Um, so if it's just a North versus South thing, that's one, one way to understand it. But now if we don't, you were to bracket off uh, the North, the Northwest states, my, my understanding is that you're going to see that the, the Northwest states are going to be, so in other words, Ohio are going to be for it. I think that's right. And, and so it's, yeah, so go ahead, Jason, you know, you know, I this just, stuff. I, I don't know. Say because yeah. it's the same thing the, yeah. the, uh, they still have, it, the Northwest still has Indian issues yeah. at this time. That's fascinating. This, this just a maybe slightly off topic question. Maybe this is not a good question. If it's irrelevant, just say so. But um, the abolitionist movement is picking up steam at this time in the North. Uh, did the abolitionist movement have any views or influence on the, uh, on the Indian removal question or no? Do we know that? Well, we do know that uh, North Northerners, Northeasterners, uh, who favored abolition also were sympathetic uh, to the Cherokee cause. Um, the, uh, you know, in, in 1827, uh, as the Cherokees adopt a written constitution and, and Georgia becomes even more enraged because of that, um, two well-educated Cherokees who had been educated in Connecticut, Elias Boudinot and uh, uh, Elias Boudinot and uh, John Ridge, go on a speaking tour, and they speak in Philadelphia, they speak in Boston, New York, etc. Uh, twofold purposes: one is to raise awareness of the Cherokee cause and, and gain sympathy, and the other is to raise funds. Uh, there's considerable overlap between abolitionists and the, the people who contribute to the Cherokee cause. It's uh, interesting, though, um, uh, in Massachusetts, uh, the Mashpee Indians are being badly mistreated. Uh, and there's a Pequot named William Apis who's working with them. And he says of people like Emerson and Thoreau, who are uh, outraged at the Cherokee treatment. He writes a, a pamphlet and says, you know, why, why do you wring your hands over the mm -hmm. Cherokee in the South when you mistreat Indians in your own state borders here in Massachusetts? Yeah. Let me, uh, uh, this is a, again, this is the opportunity to hear, hear Jason talk on this, but um, I, I'm wondering on this abolitionist uh, relationship question, how, how do they, to the extent they do, how do they deal with with uh, the, the fact of, of slavery uh, in some in some parts of the Cherokee with with the Cherokees? Mm -hmm. Well, that's an interesting uh, question. Uh, of course, the, the missionaries who support the Cherokee cause, the American Board of Commissioners of Foreign Missions, also are opposed to slavery. Cherokee slavery. This is not to defend it; it's just to to explain it. Um, only 8% of Cherokees owned slaves, and that was mainly the mixed-blood elite who had largely adopted a southern planter 
culture or lifestyle. Most Cherokees, though, who owned slaves, it was small. It was not plantation slavery in the main. There were plantations, a few, but um, it was you know uh, they would purport to own own a family or two or three slaves, and often those slaves, supposed slaves, uh, didn't even live near them. They would live off away from them, and it was much more like sharecropping. Again, that's not to defend it, but it was of a different character, and that's probably what allowed abolitionists to look the other way. And that's fascinating. That, that, that is really interesting. I, I had no idea. But this is this is part of the reason I asked the question about the abolitionists is because in the three the three big things, especially the three uh, big issues that uh, teachers are submitting questions on the national bank question, um, uh, uh, the the nullification crisis, and and the American Indian question, the views on these things are so sectionalized, right? Uh, on the national bank question, it, it, it strikes me that that most of the support for the national bank was in the northern states most of it came most of the opposition came from southern states uh the, the, the support for the idea of nullification uh arose largely as a southern idea although there were of course exceptions to that there had been previous attempts at nullification uh earlier but but nullification as an idea came to have more widespread support in the south than in the north and the uh and the american indian um, uh, um I'll call it a problem from the perspective of the southern states, is, is again predominant in the southern states. And I'm just wondering, slave the, the slave question clearly had to have had some kind of impact on all three of those issues. I'm not sure that we can tie that together in, in, in the half hour or so that we have left today, but but it would be interesting, I think, to think through how slavery affected those three emerging views, the limitation of national power, the national bank question, um, um, and, and then, of course, the Indian removal question. Yeah, um, that's that's. Um, I think it's too complicated for me to try to, to try to try to do. But that's let me just <laughs> let me make one 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 illustration though, just how complicated things are. And that's Sir Daniel Webster. Uh, you know, Mister Mister Union is um, he's holding out is for his kind of grand strategy and alliance with Jackson up until the the, the bank veto. And so, so things are things are are, are messy uh, up through the bank veto, uh, and, and so so Webster, who is a, a key opponent and a key figure in the opposition of Jackson during Jackson's second term, is 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 kind of holding out, uh, hedging his bets because he's seeing a, a space where where maybe he can uh, form a kind of national alliance with with Jackson and Jackson's people, um, and that. You know that to me, that's evidence that, that this is a that there's there's something in that first term that that defies you know that the some some of the categories we want to put on it. Mm-hmm. Let me just say in the chat box, uh, Sarah Legate uh, asked for the reference uh, that I made to the Pequot where she could find it and said it would be really good for her students. It's it's in a document by William Apis A P E S S uh, called an Indian Appeal to the White Man. Uh, and you can get it. There's a Barry O'Connell edited a volume with all of Apis's writings in it, and uh, it is in there. Thanks, Chase. What was it called again? I'm typing in the in the chat box. An, an Indian appeal to the white man. Okay, good. Thank you. 
Um, while I'm typing this in the chat box, uh, just so everybody can see it, that's that's very useful. An Indian appeal to the white man. I just typed in the chat box. Uh, there were since you brought up the the, the chat questions, uh, there were two or three that wanted to ask us almost the same question, and it had to do with Jackson's personal views with regard to American Indians. And so, uh, a few people mentioned his adoption of a Native American boy. Um, and another question had to do with uh, his willingness to use uh, American Indians as allies at the Battle of New Orleans. Do we have any thoughts on what his personal views toward uh, toward Indians were? Or is that just too hard? Is that just too? too I hard? think that's too hard. Um, in, in, I mean, clearly, at the Battle of Horseshoe Bend and the Battle of New Orleans, uh, they fought with him. Some of them fought with him in the in the first Seminole War as well, alongside him. Um, I think he thought that they were uh, uh, brave fighters, certainly when they were useful to him. But I think he, in other ways, he had very scant regard for them. Um, so it's I th it's it's way too uh, complex. It's it's interesting that after the Indian Removal Act passes. Uh, and they're making greater moves to uh, remove the Cherokee. Uh, a chief named June Alaska, who had been at the Horseshoe and who had literally saved Andrew Jackson's life at the Horseshoe, went and met with Jackson at the White House and asked him to intervene. And he said, I can do nothing for you. And June Alaska is quoted as saying, if I knew... At the horseshoe, what I know now, history would have been very different. That's amazing. Yeah, that's that's really amazing. Okay, well, very good. Thanks. Um, can I ask? Uh, can I ask um, how? We know. We know, of course, Jackson's reelected in 1832. How? How did his um, in, role in the Indian removal? act and, and, and enforcing it affect his uh, re-election at all in 1832? Was there much debate about it or was it controversial at all? My sense is it only reinforced his popularity with the constituency that elected him in 1828. Um, the, uh, you know, Indian removal is largely uh, of, of three of the tribes is largely accomplished the Seminoles actually sign a removal treaty, but then during the assembly, uh, and some of them that hadn't assembled yet, uh, stage a, a revolt in December of 1836. And uh, of course, Jackson sends uh, the army to Florida uh, in the so-called Second Seminole War uh, to root them out. It was a, an effort that will last obviously well beyond Jackson's. It lasts until it lasts six years under the Tyler administration and costs the federal government $30 million at a time when the annual uh, budget of the United States was only about 25 million. So that's amazing. Uh, just one other, if you don't mind, one other question that somebody submitted and it has to do with. Um, uh, well, the question is, it seems that, again, Jackson's two presidential obsessions were to end the bank and uh, resolve the Native American situation. Um, the question is, did he did he somehow profit personally from the sale of Indian land and or the non-renewal of the charter of the bank? 
with regard to Indian removal, the answer is no, except that um, the treaty that ended the, the Creek War, I believe he, he wrote in, he got some land in that, but, but not from Indian removal. He didn't profit from that. The bank, I don't know. Jeremy? Um, By the way, this is, a, this is a hard question, so I'm, I'm glad. Yeah, so I'm I, I I'm not aware of, of arguments that he personally profited from from bank policies, though. Though I could imagine that they're out there if you wanted to look for it. Um, um, well, I was arguing against the bank, Jeremy. Wasn't wasn't one of his arguments against the bank that it would it would actually lead to the to uh, sort of. Um, exorbitant profits for a select group of men. So yeah, sure. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, I, I guess the question would be is is somehow the, the, the alternative policy that's put in its place um, align Jackson's or Jackson's friends pockets in some other way. I mean, I suppose I suppose, you know, there's always the possibility and then, you know, following following the money trail in politics, you know, so, sometimes clarifies, but it doesn't always clarify. Um, I, I think um, the, the, the way I would answer that question is that he profited tremendously in the sense that he put uh, the bank as a kind of single election before, 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 before the country and made that what the election of 1832 is about and then won on that. And so in that sense, yes, he, he, he profited a lot. It was risky, uh, but, but it, was, it was a risk that paid off. Right. And uh, Brian McKinley has asked, I need to clarify this. The cost of $30 million for the Second Seminole War was over the entire six-year period. It wasn't a per-year cost. Mm -hmm. Okay. Yeah, thanks for that clarification, Jace. That's helpful. So uh, we've had a few other questions. Um, we have about 20 minutes or so left. Uh, we've had a few questions about, again, the National Bank question, the National Bank issue. And also, I want to spend a little bit of time uh, asking you both questions about the secession or nullification crisis in 1832. But on the question of the National Bank, um, Jeremy, earlier you mentioned the constitutional, if you will, questions that were at stake in his uh, veto message, one having to do with, it raised the question of, of, of how the veto power should be exercised. And the other was Jackson's views on the role of the courts. Um, can you say something more about how those views of Jackson, Jackson in his message were reviewed by the public, by, by, you know, by popular opinion? How well did people react or, or how much okay, yeah. to those two constitutional uh, views of Jackson? So, so, the, so, 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 so the, um, the, the first part, the veto, I'm going to be a little bit more, uh, I think, forceful and clear on. And I, the, the, there's a clear lesson. And so, so Jackson used the veto more, more the veto power more than, than all of um, the prior presidents put together. It's something like uh, he issued 12 vetoes, maybe in the first term. Um, That's outrageous. Absolutely uh, outrageous. Um, <laughs> and um, so, so there's so there's, there's increase in quantity. Um, the second thing is that there was a perceived increase in quality, and that is that Jackson, his veto, is where we're now now being grounded on policy reasons as as opposed to explicit constitutional reasons. Now, Jackson's opponents made the claim that this qualitative change departed from, from the original understanding. Um, and what's very interesting about this is our textbooks repeat this claim 
um, and that is that somehow Jackson's opponents have, have won the day from the t- perspective of the textbooks, even if they, they lost the war, in the sense that our textbooks portray Jackson's veto powers as, 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 as being um, a qualitative change. In fact, they weren't. Um, there, the, I, that, that view of, 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 the, of the original understanding of veto power is incorrect. It's also an incorrect presentation of the way early presidents, and I'm thinking of Washington and Jefferson and Madison, conceived of the veto power. And so for whatever reason, our, our, our textbooks repeat this, this error, uh, and good friends of mine repeat this error all the time. Um, so that's, that's one sort of thing to note, is that, is that there is a contest over the scope of the veto power. Jackson's opponents made certain claims. Um, they ultimately lost politically, but for some reason, the, the, the historically, they, they seem to have, have had their message uh, uh, sit in. Um, so that's, it's a kind of irony of history that the, you might say the Whig view of the veto power uh, was more influential than it should have been. Um, By the way, Jeremy, can I just, I'm just, this is interesting because as far you talk about the, whether there's a real change here in the use of the veto power, President Washington uh, issued vetoes on policy ground, or at least one that I know of, if I'm not mistaken. Yeah. Did he veto a bill having to do with garrisoning of, uh, of Western forts on the grounds that it would have been bad policy? Yeah, so so some people will say, well, that was on constitutional grounds because it was his commander in chief power or something like that. So it's somehow different if you push people on it. But that, yes, uh, even though there are lots of examples, not lots, but but a handful of examples, uh, which would demonstrate that the contrary, for whatever reason, the Whig the Whig view has persisted. Um, hopefully, I, I think I think we'll be a little bit more subtle in our understanding of the veto power over time, because what Jackson did is 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 by a, by so if now the second thing I would like to say, and this is about mere precedent and, and, and by understanding, you know, in which ways the veto is expansive and which ways it was not expansive, you get, I think, more clarity. And so what, what Jackson now, now does is he also at the same time is, is issuing more vetoes and what seemed to be a different kind of the use of veto. Jack, Jackson is also talking about a, a vision of the Constitution in which each of the departments is going to interpret the Constitution for itself. Now, for those of you who have, have taken uh, programming for, for Mashbrook before, you'll know that this is not a new idea. Uh, Jefferson uh, uh, also, Jefferson might be said as the originator of this idea. Um, and and what, it, what it does is it, it, it provides an alternative to, to thinking about judicial review as judicial finality in the way that we do today. Um, rather, early Americans probably thought, or at least some early Americans probably thought of a little bit more open process. Um, Another thing that it does, however, is it raises a very interesting question about uh, the place of the court with respect to what. And so with respect to separation of powers questions, um, I think the veto power is revealing uh, that, that, that Jackson did not see uh, the court's decision as necessarily the final say on the Constitution. So he wouldn't limit the president's veto power, for example. On the other hand, the question is, is our federalism questions, and that is state federal, as opposed to president versus Congress questions, are those subject to uh, uh, judicial review as the kind of final authority? The bank veto, I don't think, doesn't answer that question. So if I, if, I think this would be a great MAG thesis, for example, is, is, is what is Jackson's view on the Supreme Court as the final authority with respect to federalism questions? Maybe, maybe the bank says, suggests that it's not. Uh, comparing him to somebody like Madison, for example, who's clearer on this, 
Madison believed in a kind of coordinate review for separation of powers type questions, but Madison did not believe in coordinate review for a kind of for federalist questions. And so in other words, the national federal judiciary would be the final say on state disputes or the amendment process. Let me. You brought Madison up. Can you just say that again? I'm sorry, Jason, interrupt. But can you just yeah. say that last part again? Yeah. So uh, there's been a revival of of the study of, of of coordinate review, um, and some some of that is being driven um, uh, on the right uh, uh, since, since post post Reagan, basically. Um, now, uh, what the scholarship does a nice job of doing is showing that key presidents. Uh, either played footsie or, or embraced the idea of coordinate review. And those presidents would, would in some ways include Jefferson, Jackson, Lincoln, FDR, and Reagan, and, and, and presumably maybe a little bit Obama. Um, with, it, so it's, it's clarifying because it, it suggests a kind of alternative uh, universe in which uh, Supreme Court decisions aren't the, the final stop on, on serious issues. Now, um, some people have gone so far as that to quote James Madison as endorsing this view, which is true. He did on several occasions endorse this view. But to my knowledge, having thought a lot about the Madison for a while, Madison never endorsed it in terms of state versus nation type questions. It was only in separation of power questions. And so um, you wouldn't you wouldn't embrace coordinate review for for a, a, a decision about the authority of the states. Yeah. Uh, let me just say a couple of things. By coordinate review, you're talking about extrajudicial interpretation of the Constitution, right? That uh, the executive makes an independent determination uh, about uh, the Constitution. And um, I think that here's where we can come back to Indian removal. I think his refusal uh, to enforce the Supreme Court's decision in Worcester versus Georgia points at Jackson having uh, yeah. such a view. I, I don't think it's purely uh, uh, expedient. Uh, so I, I think that, you know, it's, it's, it's that same thing. And, and of course, you, you see it in Lincoln at the, uh, at the time of uh, when he suspends habeas and, and Taney uh, tells him he can't, but he just ignores it. Uh, so there is that, that view runs through all of American history and all presidential history, I think. On, on the question of the veto, uh, Jeremy, would it be fair to say that Jackson was vetoing bills that came to him from uh, a Whig-dominated Congress? I mean, how many Democrats were there in Congress? Who controlled it? So the, the, the problem, the problem um, uh, what happens, and the second term is much clearer. The first term I don't have a handle on. The second term... Jacksonians control the House. Anti-Jacksonians control the Senate. Mm -hmm. And so, for example, he's censured in the Senate, but uh, there's no, no, no movement on that action in the House because the Jacksonians control it. Now, I'm using Jacksonians and anti-Jacksonians on purpose because, because it's not quite clear. So, for example, in the first term, there are people who call themselves Democrats who are actually voting against Jackson and voting with people who would become the Whigs. Uh, and so there, there are Southern Whigs emerging uh, in that first term, I think, especially from Virginia, uh, where, where some of the old guard was 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 solid, saw that, that this sort of frontier coalition was not 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 sympathetic to what, what they uh, had in mind. Um, 
that's to say I don't have a good handle on the first on the first term as much. So who who was voting for the bank? Um, I'm going to guess that it was regional, uh, and then I'm guessing there are some anti-Jacksonians uh, add-ons to that. That's fascinating. Thank you, um, Jason. You mentioned uh, you brought up the the Worcester v. Georgia case. Can we? Since we had, uh, or we recommended that people read that, can you can you explain to us what what is this case about? It's a long, it's a very long case. We've actually just got Marshall's opinion here. There are sure. Um, the significance of the case. As I say, uh, as Georgia began in 1829, Georgia passes a whole series of laws to suppress the Cherokee Nation and extend their own laws over the territory of the Cherokee Nation. They also forbid uh, the Cherokees from meeting their, in their national government inside Georgia except to sign a removal treaty. It's a whole series of anti-Cherokee laws. Uh, that's when the Cherokees bring the suit, uh, Cherokee Nation versus Georgia, and former Attorney General William Wirt represents them before the Supreme Court. That's when Marshall says that uh, we can't reach the merits of the case because we don't have jurisdiction. Well, in the intervening year, Joseph Story works on him, and it, one of those anti-Cherokee laws said that any white who worked inside so-called boundaries of the Cherokee Nation had to swear a loyalty oath to Georgia and take out a license from the state of Georgia. And a group of eight missionaries it was directed at the missionaries who were on the side of the Cherokees, although it affected some others. Eight missionaries refused to take out the license, um, and they are arrested. Six of the missionaries then take out the license, but two continue to refuse, one of whom was Samuel Worcester. He's con convicted and sentenced to five years hard labor at the state penitentiary, and he sues for a writ of habeas corpus, claiming that he's being held unconstitutionally. And Marshall then says, yes, states have no authority over uh, Indians by the Constitution. That's the power of the federal government. And um, that uh, there are also treaties that Georgia is infringing on. Um, and, and they order Worcester released. Georgia, with Jackson's blessing, simply ignores the order. And Worcester is not released from prison until, at the direction of his bosses, the American Board of Commissioners of Foreign Missions, he writes a letter of apology to the governor of Georgia and promises if he's released, he will leave the state and never come back. So that, in a nutshell, is the, is, is the Worcester decision. And as I say, then after the nullification ordinance is passed, uh, um, suddenly that decision looks a lot better to Andrew Jackson because it is a federalist, pro-federalist position. I find this fascinating because it, it, it ties, not only brings in the secession or the uh, nullification crisis into to play here, but but it, in the same in the same. Uh, year that you've got Jackson issuing his veto of the bank bill, where he's laying out, where he's uh, he's kind of asserting, uh, you know, uh, uh, or at least it's perceived that he's he's asserting a more uh, energetic uh, use of the veto power by the executive 
Um, but at the same time, he's calling for the coordinate review that Jeremy was just talking about. In this case, he's he's refusing. Now I want to be careful how I say this. He's he is he is um, he is taking it wholly upon himself. Correct me if I'm wrong on this. To, to decide when he should or should not enforce a judicial a judicial decision. Is that what's really going on here? I just find this interesting. So is this part of all you add all this up? But I can start to see why some people thought Jackson actually was aggrandizing executive power. Yeah, let me let me add one more to that list. Please. Yeah, and 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 the Whigs, the Whigs really noticed this. Um and and what it is 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 he argues uh, number one, uh this is like back to the TR question, that the president is the direct representative of the American people. Notice he says this in the context of the bank. He also says this in the context of nullification. One evidence that there's this thing called union that exists beyond state sovereignty is that the president is, 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 is represented by the whole. Now, the, the, the next thing that he adds to this is that when uh, uh, um, uh, the, the president uh, acts on behalf of the whole, the people are speaking through the president. And that means that the president, that, that the election of 1832 was an election about the bank policy. This is relatively routine for us. That to argue that an election can decide a policy issue. This uh, uh, just drives people like Webster and Clay into fits. Uh, <laughs> this, is, this, is, this is just inconceivable. For a lot of the reasons that that political scientists today say it's inconceivable that an election can decide a policy issue, uh, you know, did the, the, the people vote for for George Bush because they agreed with 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 reforming Social Security? No, they probably voted for George W. Bush because John Kerry was for it before he's against it, right? And and so so the disen <laughs> the, 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 the disentangle uh, this stuff is 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 really really difficult, and the Whigs are trying to make this point. Now, by the way, when you push this down the road. Lincoln is a Whig. He can't embrace the Jacksonian argument that the president represents the people, A, and B, that presidential elections can solve policy issues. That's the Democratic Jacksonian position. The Whigs have been arguing about that for 20, 30 years. And so Lincoln, if you watch him in 1860 and 1864, Lincoln is confused about this question. Um, and and so so this is this is a, a kind of an unsettled thing that, that Jackson just unleashes on onto onto the country, and he goes beyond that. So the removal of the Treasury Secretary, uh, the reason why he can remove the Treasury Secretary, is because he's representative of the people. The Treasury Secretary is not, which in Jackson's mind means that Congress cannot issue orders to the Treasury Secretary. Um, that the, the Treasury Secretary has to follow if the president says not to follow it. Which is to say that the Treasury Secretary doesn't have to enforce laws passed by Congress if the president tells him not to. That's that, amazing. That, that issue is still with us today. Because, I mean, tomorrow, if the Congress were to pass a law saying the Secretary of Defense cannot do X with respect to Iraq or ISIS, the president would say, oh, wait a minute, you can't tell us to tell us the, the, Treasury, the, the, the Secretary of Defense that. And but, but that's that's what Jackson that is, is created. And that's what the Whigs are, are reacting against. Yeah, that, that's, that's a great parallel. Uh, Brian has put a question in there having uh, to do with this. It's tied to this. 
Uh, Brian's question is, would it be fair to say that pre Jackson, the House of Representatives was considered to be the representative of the, uh, of the people? So um, and Jackson, of course, is, is claiming to be the representative of the people in his own way here. Uh, but, but of all the people, whereas the House of Representatives, the representatives only represent uh, their districts, or some might say more broadly, their states. And of course, the Senate at this time are elected by state legislators, legislatures, so they are the representatives of the states, not the people. So how widespread, yeah. my question is, how widespread um, was the, how, how many Americans, what was popular opinion on this with regard to Jackson's claim that he was representative of the whole people? Is that a new idea or so, I, was that, that widely received, was it? That, that's actually the, 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 the subject of my next book uh, coming out <laughs> in, th in three or four years. Um, it, it's called The Idea of Presidential Representation of Political and Intellectual History. And, and the answer is we don't know. We know a lot about presidential assertions of, of this. Uh, we, did, we know next to nothing about how widespread uh, their contemporaries believed it. Uh, my, my other, my other uh, uh, intervention here with the question would be is that rather than looking at a before and after moment, I think to me it might be more helpful to see it as a, as, as a, as a, uh, a continually contested idea. And that is today, presidents assert it and critics of presidents say, oh, wait a minute, that doesn't make any sense. Uh, especially Congress. Yeah, yeah. I will have to go back and look. This is my last plug for Joseph Story. Joseph Story, who was Associate Justice and was the first professor of law at Harvard, wrote a two-volume set called Commentaries on the Constitution of the United States. And it is considered by many second only to the Federalists in interpretations of the Constitution. So I'll have to go see what he says about that. Yeah, yeah, that's true. Yeah, very good. Um, uh, Maggie O has asked uh, about the best books on Jackson. I'll give you guys a minute to think about that if you want, or you can answer that now. We have about five minutes left. Um, but, um, let me throw another possible question out. We don't have to talk about this. We've got five minutes left. I'd like to know your thoughts on how well Jackson handled the nullification crisis or if he could have handled it better. Uh, somebody asked a question along that lines earlier. You can, of course, answer that if you like, or take the last five minutes or so to talk about what what we haven't talked about, but really should have talked about with regard to Jackson's presidency. So on the, on the books question, um, the, the obvious answer is anything by by Remini. Yeah. Um, and exactly and right. so so just just do that. That's very easy. So. Um, and he has one specifically on Jackson and Indians. Yeah. Um, the, the, the sec, the second thing I would say is, um, that, that the chapter in Landy and Milkus's uh, presidential greatness on Jackson, I find to be very, very useful in terms of a short, a short chapter. Um, the, uh, and, and as far as nullification, how well did he handle it? I don't have the details at my fingertips. I, sh I should, I should have, uh, uh, looked at my notes uh, on this, but it's my understanding that, that, that Jackson took a, a number of measures, um, behind the scenes to sort of prep nullification or his response to nullification. So there is both a kind of a show of force um, and legislative support. This is key. He gets Congress on board and there's a kind of uh, way out for for the people that he's dealing with. And so so as as a policy endeavor, there's a lot more to it than just telling South Carolina you can't do this. There's actually three or four steps in the whole thing. 
including including getting the the the, the force uh, bill approval. Uh, so I would say it's it, it breaks pretty high. It, it's a, it seems to me it's a job well done in the way that he dealt with it. I I, I would agree with that. I want to say on the, on the other question of what we didn't say but should have with regard to the Indian Removal Act and, and Jeremy earlier in a different context you you mentioned the Trans-Pacific uh, Partnership. Uh, really, if you read the Removal Act, it authorizes the president to negotiate new treaties with the Indians for removal. That's what it does. Mm-hmm. So, so it's kind of the 1830 equivalent of fast-track authority for the president. That's very interesting. Yeah, I was going to ask about that because if I'm reading that correctly, it, it basically gives the president the authority to organize the territories too, right? The districts Correct. in the territories? Correct. And so Indian Territory is carved out of the Arkansas Territory. Indian Territory being what is essentially the state of Oklahoma today minus the Oklahoma Panhandle. Yeah. Yeah. But that's a that's a pretty is is that an unusual delegation of authority at this time to the president to say here here's the territory you get to divide up the districts among the various tribes as you see fit Had that has something like that been done before this was debated I, this was debated with the Louisiana Purchase ah okay I find that fascinating it's it's remarkable so uh, so we have two minutes left so I'll just throw out a big question. <laughs> Um, and, and that we can't answer in two minutes. I have a tendency of doing this, but um, uh, so we started with the with the parallels, uh, the possible parallels with with Theodore Roosevelt. And uh, I mentioned that some progressives like Jackson, others don't like Jackson. Um, in some more contemporary presidents, do you see um, do you see sort of vestiges of the Jacksonian way of doing things uh, with regard to his? influence on Congress or his, his views on his role as the representative of the whole people. I guess uh, I'll borrow a question from a previous session. Which of the, mo- which of the most recent presidents, um, in the, let's say in the 20th century, are, are the most Jacksonian? Or are there any? I can tell FD, it's a question. FDR <laughs> is about the most recent that I would point to. FDR yeah. is the most recent Jacksonian president? Okay. Yeah, I mean, you know, they're, they're, um, what's his name? Um, I think the guy who, uh, what's his name? Um, there's a, there's a, 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 a pollster type who uh, categorizes um, various coalitions. And, and one of his categories for, for coalitions that are Jacksonians. And, and, and what, what he means is, uh, I think, um, working class whites, uh, and so so you know in that sense that may, may, maybe yeah that 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 coalition or that, that that's still with us today. Just thinking in that terms, I will say that that modern presidents do not talk about political parties in the same way the Jacksonians do. Uh, we seem to have um, crossed a threshold uh, post post nineteen seventies in, in in which in which presidents. Um, like Jackson, are, are you know staying on their own biography rather than 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 than, than anything else. Uh, but but I think Jackson and his time would would require a sense of political parties that just aren't with us today. Yeah, yeah, that's great. Well, I, I, we, we need to wrap things up, but I want to thank you both very much for being with us today. I mean, you've raised some great points, and uh, I've learned a lot from our conversation today, and I hope our participants have as well. So. Thanks very much to both of you. This has been really, really good.
Thanks. Really. You were going to mention about the certificates? Yes. Before. Yeah, I'll just remind everybody once again that um, you'll receive an email uh, with a link to get your certificate of participation. So uh, you should get that within the next week. Uh, I'll also mention that if, if you've enjoyed our conversation today, this is this is largely how we do things in our in our uh, graduate courses in our Master of American History, Master of Arts in American History and Government program, which you can find out more information on at our tah.org website, Teaching American History website. Uh, our next Saturday webinar will be November 7th. Uh, that president will also be uh, probably controversial. It's James K. Polk, Young History and Manifest Destiny, and we'll be joined by Dan Monroe of Millican University and Eric Sands of Barry College. Uh, we've already posted the recommended readings for that webinar. So if you plan on joining us, take a look, and I hope to see you then. Thanks again for joining us. Thank you. Jason and Jeremy, well done.